Yeah, I literally walked away from everything I know. I knew no income, no friends, no family. Wow. But it paid off. Mm. Goosebumps again. (laughs) Getting a lot of goosebumps in our chat. Welcome to Therapist Expanded, where we start a mental health revolution by living our dreams fully and freely beyond industry conditioning and taking every client with us because we'll only take them as far as we've gone. So join me, your host, Aaron Gibb, and my trailblazing guests and be revolutionary by expanding your mind and your life to your freest and fullest potential. Hello, revolutionaries. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast. I hope you all had an amazing holiday. Today, I am interviewing Christine Hall of Black Sheep Counseling. You probably heard from the intro, Christine walks the walk. She is all about authenticity and showed up very real for this podcast. And like all podcasts, I'm never really sure how it's going to go. But Christine shared moving, personal, and important professional things here that I'm very excited to share with you. You can learn more about Christine by going to the show notes, seeing her website and her Facebook page, which has a pretty massive following because she offers a lot of great content there and her LinkedIn profile. So that'll all be in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. And you see someone who's really stepping into the arena. In the show notes, you're also going to find a link to my Monday MindUps email list. Many of us have goals and something keeps derailing us, busyness, all the stuff. We all know it. So if you've got a dream, a goal, or you just want to be more fulfilled and stuff keeps getting in the way, then go into the show notes, sign up for my Monday MindUps email list, and I look forward to serving you and not blowing up your inbox. So without further ado... Here's my interview with Christine Hall of Black Sheep Counseling. Okay, Christine. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. So we always start with the question, tell us about yourself, your work, and your passions in the field. Okay. Uh, So I'm in private practice here in Nanaimo, British Columbia. My number one value is authenticity. So um, I lead with that. I really try to support people in being their authentic self. I think that is something that holds us back. One of the things that I am very fierce about in my practice is uh, giving my clients the sense of choice and that we are working in collaboration. I don't think that I'm an expert in their lives. They're an expert in their lives. And I'm here to come alongside and help them get to their preferred way of being. I'm very passionate about that. And I like the creativity that comes along with that, getting to know people's quirks, um, personalities, and watching that unfold. I use a lot of play and humor and color. You can probably see color around me. That's very much a part of who I am. I specialize in relational trauma. And so lots of my clients were parentified or they didn't have the best early life experiences. And so I really believe that play is an important component 
of our overall well-being. And that is very present in, in um, my treatment approach. Oh, I could say so much about play. Um, <laughs> as someone I work in, a our, my clinic has three playrooms. So one of them for adults, two of them for kids. Yeah. So I could say a lot. It's so, cool. so important. And yeah. what you said about authenticity, as I look back on my career doing trauma therapy and now working almost exclusively with therapists, it was so interesting working with clients about authentic self and now working with therapists about authentic self. There's different conditioning. I mean, we all have somewhat cultural conditioning. We have our unique familial conditioning, our personal conditioning. And therapists have this amazing conditioning that I think is becoming more recognized, but it's like the authentic self as a therapist is an important hurdle because the conditioned self can be very strong. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's just making me think that when I opened my practice and I'm in my home office right now, but my professional office is is equally colorful. And I got a lot of negative feedback around that. Oh, counselors are supposed to be a calming place and you have to pick, you know, nature scenes and stuff like that. And I thought, well, that's not me being my authentic self. Now, if somebody is opposed and not comfortable in a colorful environment, and I'm not their therapist. That's okay. That's totally okay. I can't promote authenticity and not show up and be authentic. <laughs> yes, 100%. Uh, when I started putting spiritual information on my private practice website, I remember hearing something like colleagues would say, well, what is the college going to say? And what about all these clients you'll be excluding? And it was like, yeah, but I'm not for them. I'd be faking it. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. I can really feel that. Yes, absolutely. And I know I made some some notes when I was preparing for this and you talked about self-disclosure a little bit in uh, an email you sent me. Mm -hmm. How do you think that fits in with authenticity? Um, I think because what we're, you know, I, I believe that we're here to connect with other people. I believe that my job is I get to love people for a living. And part of that is sharing our human experience and recognizing that we are united in our suffering. That just because I'm a therapist doesn't mean that I don't struggle in a whole bunch of ways. It doesn't mean that I haven't gone through crappy things and didn't make the best choices. That's, you know, I think that wisdom is healed pain. We have to recognize that we go through rocky journeys and come out and see things from a different perspective. And to be able to share some of those, if they're appropriate um, for what a client might be um, going through, to recognize they're not alone in these challenges, I think is incredibly powerful. In my own counseling experience, it was the counselors that would disclose. And interestingly enough, I found that it was more um, counselors that were of a different culture. Um that I felt more aligned with because I could see their humanness. And that was important for me. And it helped minimize my shame. I love that. The way you said that healed, healed suffering is wisdom. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The 
I'm even thinking of the research that talks about how the things that their that clients, excuse me, remember, like actually remember, are the things we told them about ourselves. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and there's a lot of research on that. When you look at something like um like oral traditions in our in First Nations culture, I mean, all of those we remember them because there's a story attached to it. If I just said, you know, to a child, don't do X because boy, I really messed up when I did that. There's not going to be any. But if there's a story attached to it, invokes emotion, then that has a resonance in it. Same with profs. I remember when profs would tell stories about their own experience, not the textbook stuff. That's the stuff that stayed with me. And that to me brings up how uh, when I have interns and I have students, which is a a lot of what I'm doing lately in my practice outside of the coaching of therapists, it's amazing what they've internalized from graduate school. Uh, Some of this conditioning is very strong in graduate school. They have a hard time at first in my experience being themselves and knowing what they want to do, which, you know, they're new. So their approach is developing, but even just having the permission to show up as a human being seems to have been scrubbed away on some level. It's kind of insidious. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, when you look at something like a graduate school program and they say, you know, the importance of self-care, but it's not structured in a way to practice any self-care and there's not optimal time for self-reflection. So they're on a hamster wheel learning that these things are important, but there's no way to effectively incorporate them into the program. Totally. So it <laughs> the system is flawed. Mm, yes. Uh, talk about shame and self-blaming. I, I see that trajectory for these interns who come out. There's already this like, well, I should be doing these things, but there's a lack of time. And then for the people who roll into agency work, there's this self-blame. Mm-hmm. And then for a lot of people, the, when they stop blaming themselves is when they actually say, I'm done with maybe agency work or all this self-sacrifice. And sometimes that leads people into private practice, just the the very realization that that was a setup. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you're in private practice. Would you share with us a little bit about your background, your journey? How did you get to private practice? Um, well, I haven't always been a counselor. Um, I have a very varied background. So I used to work in the film industry in Vancouver back in the early 90s when there were no women in the art department. Uh, So very, very male dominated was a bunch of teamsters. Um, So I did feel that I had to prove myself twice as hard. Worked long hours. I loved it. I loved the creative aspect of it, but wasn't a healthy environment. I also worked in the service industry. I owned a restaurant. I managed a lot of restaurants and I did um, large scale special event uh, design. So I have quite a varied background. I've had over a hundred jobs. I've moved 35 times and I've traveled to 45 countries. And I think that makes me a better therapist because I have such varied life experience. And with that, I have struggled 
I have failed. All of those kind of things help better inform my journey as a therapist as well. When you said, I think that makes me a better therapist, I just got full body goosebumps, head to toe. And it reminded me of what you said about you've enjoyed having a therapist from a different culture. And I I think about how that may be different than what you're saying about yourself, but having this varied experience to draw off of, and that it isn't exclusively this kind of indoctrination, this grad school stuff, and and no judgment of people who come out of this young, but having had this varied life experience, absolutely, I would imagine it contributes to so much. Like you're saying, it's it's yeah. your foundation. It actually, I mean, when I when I did go to grad school, it made like it was. I found school incredibly easy because I was older, um, and I literally, I mean, I'd be reading psychopathology, and I'd think oh, I know that person, or I've been that person, or I've seen these presentations time and time again. I didn't have to imagine them. I I mean, I literally wrote notes in my margins about, oh, 1982, 1996. Like, it just all came together for me so easily. Mm -hmm. So there's something else that I'm, I'm drawing on that I understand about a shared interest around this work, which is the bottom-up approach? Yes. A lot of my clients have been in therapy a long time. Um, when I meet them, they have done all of the programs. Um, oftentimes, they're on disability or long-term disability. Um, they've done sort of those mandatory CBT online programming. And there's some skills that they've learned. But what happens is when the dust settles, there's an increase in shame because the perception is I've done all the things, I've done all the worksheets, and I'm still struggling with maladaptive coping mechanisms or, you know, uh, mood disorders and these kind of things. And we can only, we can't think ourselves out of our trauma response. We really can't. I mean, if I threw something at you and you said, if anybody ever throws something at me, I'm going to respond this in a different way. That's not going to happen. This part of the brain is firing automatic responses. So, you know, I, I, I generally start with a lot of psychoeducation to normalize that there is no shame. This isn't a lack of trying. This is what's happening from a neurobiological standpoint. This is what's happening physiologically and helping to reduce that shame so we can start to implement some different ways of being and work somatically. And I often, I, I will disclose that I'm going to ask you to try some things that are really weird and they seem kind of crazy. Please at any time say, remind me why we're doing this again. Or maybe I don't want to do this one. Is there something else that we can try? Again, really, really illuminating that there is a sense of choice. And then I find that, and, and I do a really robust intake as well. So I don't want to just know, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? Who are your supports? Those are great questions, but I actually even want to know what, what other things that maybe aren't humans that are supports? Is it fly fishing? Is it hiking? Is it reading comic books? And incorporate that into the treatment as well. I love what you're saying. And 
when I look at taking in people into the clinic, so interns or therapists who work with us, there's only really two prereqs I have because I believe in choice that they can do whatever they want. But the thing that I can't help but think from is about that people hear themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. we are well on the deepest level. This is conditioned experience. Yeah. So people need, to, I can't work with people who pathologize and think of the diagnoses as lasting. There's lots of room for that in the world. We have lots of people who are doing that. I just can't supervise those people. And bottom up, that's the other thing. I, I need to be able to find out, are they open to that? Yeah. Because I can't, I just can't think another way. So as I've yeah. seen it in my experience, it's interesting you're saying about your clients. My ideal client, when I was doing trauma therapy, had been in therapy for at least 10 years. Yeah. And so they had a very similar, I never thought about it as shame, but they had accumulated a ton of things that couldn't be integrated in the moments of trigger because it was, you know, it was a bottom up situation. It was hijacking. Yeah. Totally. And it seemed to benefit them to understand that the last guy we want to inform is the thinker. We want to have a bottom up experience and then make new meaning. Going through the meaning door, it's kind of closed. It's totally it is. Have an experience. Yeah, exactly. And that did, uh, I never thought about it in your way with shame, but they started to realize why the past therapies hadn't, that sort of the top down therapies hadn't done what they were looking for. Yeah. Well, and you think about it, you know, like what are common reactions to shame? Self-criticism, projection, attacking others, isolation, uh, self-medicating. Like, so why would we want to incite shame to, you know, and and expect that there's going to be positive change? It's there's not. We're always working with shame. Absolutely. And if we start to understand the the place that this experience that we might call trauma or just the conditioning experience came in is if it was in a traumatic way, it's going to be bottom up. But you see that in the statistics on CBT. If you, if people were to see the dropout rate of those studies, that's not reported because they don't have to. It's about a 70% dropout rate. So what the studies are showing is that maybe 30% of people really respond well. That's why the studies are comparable to EMDR, for example. Mm-hmm. But the dropout rates in the EMDR studies are far lower. But I think that if my my way of looking at that is that maybe 30% of people in the world are not dealing with the bottom-up stuff. They didn't have a lot of traumatic experiences. They had a lot of attunement. You know, we look at even the the... Actually, the percentage of people who supposedly are doing naturally empathic parenting, emotion coaching, it's about 30%. So mm-hmm. I think why CBT looks like it works so well is because we're not looking at that 70% of people. It just, it, it's creating this experience of shame. I can't do it because of this bottom up response. Well, and, and completing a CBT program, doing all of the worksheets and the modules or whatever doesn't mean that it's integrated long term. Mm-hmm. And 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 I, I think that, you know, oftentimes it's kind of like starting a, a diet or something like that. You know, we can maintain it and then we drop off. And I think, you know, a, a, a lot of these CBT things are similar. It's like, yeah, I, I've got a program. I'm going to follow it. And you follow it for so long and then you revert back into old 
ways of being. Yes, because the old ways are much more powerful. Sure they are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. So I'm wondering the question I like to ask everybody, and that is, what does mental health revolution mean to you? (laughs) Um, So I have resistance in my body with with that question. And I think for me, and I know you don't mean it this way, but for me, it, I just sort of, uh, interpret that as if we only did X, everything would be okay. And I have a lot of resistance to that. I also have a lot of resistance to systems. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there for me. I, when I think of a revolution, I, it, it, I guess I, I, I just, um, that seems almost like going to battle. And I think the opposite is what's needed is we need compassionate care and we need connected care. We need to remember that we're all in this together. You know, when the pandemic first hit, I thought there was something really beautiful in how we united. We, it was very, you know, we were scared, but how we celebrated the nurses every day. And boy, have we moved far away from that. But I really feel like that is what's needed to care about, you know, our fellow humans. I love that you're so honest about it. It's beautiful. And yeah, to me, revolution is definitely nonviolent. It is completely about self-empowerment. But yeah. But I hear what you're saying because to me, the revolution is standing outside of systems and looking at ourselves as what do we really want outside of self-sacrifice, outside of half-dos, outside of musts. Um, But the system, oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah. There's so much we could say about that. I I wrote a blog during the pandemic because I was bumping up against systems. And I have a real aversion to the statement, we've always done it this way. Um, even just talking about it, I can feel like my my body clenches because it makes me irate. To me, it's such um, a giving up. We've always done it this way. Well, and it doesn't work. It's not effective. So let's collaborate on something that is more effective, that is actually genuinely helping people. Mm-hmm. When I worked for the government, that was one of the last straws <laughs> for me. Yeah. <laughs> Working in the government in the Northwest Territories, I was like, oh, they they wanted to help people, but it was a, a lot of entrenched thinking. Just yeah. this this inside the box. And I interviewed someone, and this has already gone live, a woman who um does Menders, the podcast Menders, that's all about helping health systems. And when we were talking about that, her name's Nicola DePaul. Mm -hmm. When we were talking about that, it was like, to me, there's such an opportunity to look outside of the box and we don't even have to, you know, people seem to want security in that statement of we've always done it this way. There are health systems all over the world. We can even just look to what they're doing. It's just a small step outside the box, but I bet you Finland is probably doing it pretty differently than North America, for example. No kidding. And, yeah, there's a lot of places. 
So it's this like stepping outside of the box of people. I love to just like destroy the box, find a new one, make a new one. But even in this long lineage of entrenchment and complacency, I hear you saying they're like just giving up. There are boxes that exist that are far superior to what we've got going on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And why wouldn't we explore those? Yeah, just even as are they applicable to our situation? Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating. It's that's one of the things that really stands out for me as a traveler, because here in North America, we're so entrenched in an individualistic cultural society, right? Mm -hmm. There's more, there's more people living in bigger environments by themselves. And we have a loneliness epidemic. I would say almost all of my clients suffer with loneliness to some degree. Even ones that, you know, people that are married, but just disconnected. And I travel to other parts of the world that are poor, third world countries. I was just in Morocco for the month of November. And they don't suffer with the same levels of loneliness that we do. They suffer with things like not enough food and there hadn't been rain in two years there. But they don't suffer with that disconnection the way that we do. I remember learning that lesson as a child and going even to Cuba. I went when I was 11, so that was in the 90s. Cuba was different then. The social problems were more on the streets. Now they've moved into the homes. It was less palatable for tourists back then. Yeah. yeah. But what I saw was confusing as an 11-year-old North American. And I said to my dad when we were leaving, I cried and said I didn't want to leave. I loved it there. And also that those people weren't free. Like they couldn't leave. And he said, yeah, yeah you're, you're right, Aaron, but they have everything that makes them happy. Look at them. They, yeah. they love so deeply. And it was like, even though I visited a house where there was cardboard on their walls, they were so happy and deeply connected. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's, I, I actually have goosebumps listening to you because that's been my experience. I mean, I've been to the Divari slum in Mumbai. Mm. And, you know, there's two toilets in that entire slum. And yet the children, you hear them play and they're so gleeful. Um, when I was in Jordan, uh, my partner and I sat on a bench and watched children play soccer with an old water bottle. And the joy was like, I, it made me cry. I, I, I don't, I rarely see children that gleeful here in North America where we have an abundance. We have an abundance, but we also have an abundance of shoulds and musts and expectations and a meter stick. That to me, yeah. I see this image of a, a seven-week-old fetus being measured and compared. That the psychic trauma of continuously, constantly being measured and compared for a, a new person their whole life. And I see what happens when I'm working with therapists and I want to help them get below this conditioning. It's like, where do you want to create from? And inevitably, when they go into some sort of journeying, because to get below the conditioning isn't easy. We know that. They go yeah. into a journey. We do something. They'll come back and it's the, the frequency or the essence they bring back is usually something like joy, ease, freedom, connection. Yeah solidness it's these absolutes that we just can't you know break in the air that 
that you're alluding to that you saw in those kids playing with the water bottle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often bring the word awe into the therapy room because it's, it's an emotion that small children experience daily, hourly. I mean, they pick up a pen and they're in awe. They see a light in the sky and they're in awe. And we as adults, I, I experience awe when I travel. That's why I, I, I love it so much. It's my passion. But how often do we experience awe in our everyday life? Not very often. Mm-hmm. And so giving ourselves opportunities to do that, going for a walk in nature and embracing the awe, um, that is therapeutic. Oh, yeah. I, I just returned from a retreat in Sedona. And mm. my conscious intention about returning after climbing mountains and being with amazing women and being in spiritual practice and on the land. And when I got home, I was like, okay, ease and awe and these different things, that is going to happen here. That is who I am. That's my birthright. But what I'm watching is the conditioning, right? It's just, that's going to be my work is to watch how, and I think for all of us in certain environments, the conditioning is, is pretty automatic. So for me, the work isn't going, I do not have to accept that back in as this, it's like a wet wool robe is what it feels like to me. Yeah. Yeah. We get so task oriented. That's, that's something that I try to implement and I, and I encourage my clients to. So we still have to go pick up the kids and go to Costco and do all of the things. And, you know, sometimes it's those exact moments that we make a conscious choice to take the scenic route home. You know, it's only an extra five minutes, but wow, the sun's going down and to see it on the ocean, that's pretty fabulous mm. in this crazy day. Just looking for these little moments that we can realistically inject into our everyday routines absolutely i've learned that you can come from joy and ease around anything laundry can be joyful and easeful yeah Yeah. Yeah. i love that and i i really hope that as our listeners who are many therapists that they're uh, taking this in because yes at any moment we can engage our beginner's mind Mm -hmm. thank you so as a kind of Last question. Sometimes it's two questions. Sometimes it's kind of two sides of a coin. I'm wondering, you've had varied life experience and it's brought you to this career and you're doing this awe-inspiring work. Can you tell us about the two sides of the coin when you've held yourself back from fully living a dream or desire and when you've gone after that? Well, I would say for most of my life, I um, I held back. I mean, I've always had things that I've connected to. I'm a creative person. I love traveling. Those have always been those have always been present in my life. But I certainly surrounded myself in environments that weren't that hindered my growth. The conditioning that I received in my own family of origin. My parents were immigrants. My parents had me quite old as well. I was, I was actually the mistake. And so part of that conditioning made me believe that I wasn't worthy and that I wasn't capable. I was also called creative as a small child and creative in my family kind of insinuated the opposite side of the spectrum. So you're smart or you're creative. And so I didn't think that I had the um, academic capability 
to do the things that I have now easily done. So that I, I that definitely held me back, and I was entrenched in some maladaptive coping mechanisms, as was part and parcel of the industries that I worked in. So at forty, I decided that oh, my house burned down as well, and that, as traumatic as that was, that really sort of was a new beginning for me, and I decided that I was going to put my everything blind faith, totally blind faith into a new way of being. I couldn't be happier, but it came from a lot. It it started off as a very dark place for sure. What you said that the wisdom comes out of those places, the healed places. Yeah. And giving yourself that opportunity to get quiet um, with yourself because your truth is here and never goes away. This overrides it and it gets very, very loud. There's a lot of chatter that happens there and a lot of the shooting that happens there. But the wisdom's always here. Mm. Yes. I feel like that's a mic drop in itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you've taken risks and gone after your dream now. It sounds like you made the the kind of two paths, the the fork divided hand gesture there that when your house burnt down and you made that choice, made the decision, you started taking the blind faith risk and here you are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I literally walked away from everything I know. I knew no income, no friends, no family. Wow. But it paid off. Mm. Goosebumps again. (laughs) getting a lot of goosebumps in our chat thank you i'm wondering if there's any last anything you'd like to impart to the listeners including if you'd like them to know where to find you yeah i'm easy to find i'm on social media i'm on black sheep counseling is the name of my practice i'm on instagram linkedin and facebook Uh, i do post quite a bit i have a lot of followers I love what I do and I give a lot of free content. Um, And I also, disclaimer, just because it doesn't resonate with you, (laughs) doesn't mean that it's wrong. If it doesn't resonate with you, you can keep scrolling. (laughs) I I have had some interesting feedback along the time uh, because my practice is called Black Sheep Counseling. I have been accused of being racist, which um, was an interesting one for me. And I'm sorry that that uh, landed for somebody like that. But the black sheep is an art archetype. And um, as you know, as a therapist, it's uh, it's not a discriminatory, discriminatory term. Yeah, I'm, I'm easy to find. Um, my content is mostly about relational trauma, complex PTSD, lots of somatic techniques to take away. Beautiful. So for all the therapists listening, then that mm-hmm. would be very helpful to them and their clients. And I like how you clarified that. <laughs> I ask the question, what's worth being criticized for all the time when I'm creating things? Because yeah. the that chatter, that chatter yeah. egoic kind of mind will never say anything's worth being criticized for. So it's a little hack. Any of my listeners know this hack. I use it all the time. And it brings you, it drops you deeper. Because what's actually worth putting out into the world and knowing 
you could be criticized for is the stuff that really matters to each individual. Totally. And it just reminds me of, you know, Brene Brown's The Arena. (laughs) Yes. Yep. I'll take feedback from Aaron, who's a fellow therapist, Mm -hmm. who's in the arena with me. Oh, I love that. It's a great way to think about it. Anytime I'm going to put a post in any way, I'm going to think about it. Am I in the arena when I'm saying Mm -hmm. this? As if yeah, I'm the not. person giving feedback, are they there with me? Do they have an understanding of what I'm doing and what I'm trying to put out there yeah. and how vulnerable it is? Or is it somebody in the cheap seat seats that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so very much, Christine. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Therapist Expanded. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast to help more of our colleagues join the revolution. 